Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 29, 2017. The share ID numbers for Friday, October 20th, 27th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 10597. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 10599. This morning, A Vision for You presents the maintenance of our spiritual condition. The purpose of steps one through nine is a personal transformation leading to a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. With step 10, the big book tells us sanity has returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor, our part our binge foods. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. The big book also gives us a very clear warning. If we do not keep in fit spiritual condition, we will relapse. Our mental obsession will return. We will become insane once again. How do we keep in fit spiritual condition? One part of that vital process includes step 10. Step 10 means adopting a way of life that requires continuous commitment and effort. The difficulties and the rewards of the step come from applying it to our lives day after day, month after month, year after year as an essential part of the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Joining us to speak about Step 10 is Joe M., a recovered compulsive overeater from Minnesota. Joe is faithful to our design for living and to carrying this message of recovery. Welcome to the line, Joe. Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me okay? I hear you well. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Joe, and I am a compulsive overeater, and I'm going to be sharing my experience and perspective on Step 10 today. But first, I need to qualify myself as a compulsive overeater um, and so that I can establish uh, why I'm here in the first place. Uh, so I want to give you uh, some of my history. I come from a very painful history of compulsive overeating. This addiction had me from a young age. Uh, at my worst, I weighed 254 pounds. That's 120 pounds heavier than I am now. Uh, At that point, I was binging every night for several hours in front of the television. I had food hangovers every morning. I woke up with nausea, head pressure, head rushes, lethargy. I had food stashes in my car, my purse, my glove compartment, my dresser drawer. I baked and I would eat the whole batch uh, in quick order, rarely sharing it with anyone else. Uh, there was an all-you-can-eat buffet uh, where I went, and I would have, you know, large plates, mounds, really, of food, and then I would have three desserts. I ate food that was stale, burnt, and frozen. Uh, I would hide out in movie theaters to binge on concessions and to hide out from life. One time I binged so bad the night before at a movie theater that the next day I was writhing on the floor of the bathroom where I worked, feeling like I was going to throw up and beside myself with a food hangover. I induced vomiting after a day-long binge one time, and that happened to be after I was in OA. Um, I would eat uh, large bags of crunchy, salty, 
foods, buy you know baked goods galore at convenience stores, sugar, flour, fat, salt, and volume. Uh, I had I had no bottom. Um, when I would wake up in the morning from that food hangover, I would not eat breakfast um, due to that bad hangover. Uh, but about two o'clock in the afternoon, the hangover would get worse, and I didn't want to feel the effects of that worsening hangover. So the only way that I knew how to quiet the hangover down was to eat. So I would eat a little bit uh, at mid-afternoon and uh, tied myself over with some sugary stuff. And then when I would get off work at 7 or 7.30 at night, I would proceed to binge until midnight, 1 in the morning, uh, either at a movie theater or in my car or in front of the television. Overeating had dominated my life for a long time. It, it had gotten a foothold when I was about eight years old, and it did nothing but get worse from that point. In grade school, I overeat. I overate at meals. In junior high, I was starting to obsess about food in between meals, so fantasizing about what I would eat and when. Uh, I started. I started shoplifting food and stealing food from my babysitting clients because they always had the good stuff, um, and I enjoyed babysitting, but I always would uh, wait for the kids to go to bed. I would want them, there would come a point in the evening, I would want them to go to bed so that I could eat in secrecy um, and in peace. In high school, the eating got worse. More sneaking, um, the shoplifting accelerated. That, that's the only thing I ever shoplifted was food. Um, I got a job at a fast food joint, and I stole their food when the manager wasn't looking uh, so more stealing, more obsessing. Um, high school is when I started eating in bathroom stalls, and that bathroom stall eating continued into college. Um, when I got to college, my eating just ballooned. They had an all-you-can-eat food plan, which I took full advantage of, vending machines around campus, uh, convenience stores across the dorm. There was an overnight donut shop that I went to, ordering pizza from the front desk of the dorm. After college, the eating progressed, and I had three things that contributed to the progression. They didn't cause the progression, but they just made it easier. I had a car, I had an income, and I had privacy because I had a, an apartment or I had a roommate, and she went home on the weekends, and all that just made the e eating easier. Um, I had a designated binge night uh, after college, which was Saturday night. I would get off work at noon on Saturday, go to the grocery store, load up on binge foods, come home, sleep until 4, and then get up and binge for several hours in front of the television. That was my Saturday night. Uh, within several years, every night was a binge night. And by the time I was in my early 30s, I had uh, climbed to that point of well over 200 pounds, 254 pounds. And I paid big consequences, um, you know, for my eating. My face was stretched out. My stomach was stretched out. Um, to this day, I have stretch marks uh, on my body from my obesity. I had to sit or lean wherever I went because gravity was pulling down on me so hard that it was uncomfortable to stand. I was out of breath a lot. I couldn't even walk across the floor without being out of breath. I couldn't, let alone walk up and down stairs, um, get in, in and out of my car, in and out of bed. I was, I was demoralized. I was hopeless. I was worried about my health. I remember one time at work, and I felt really thirsty, and immediately I felt terrified because I knew that excessive thirst was a symptom of adult-onset diabetes. And I thought, oh, my God, what if I have diabetes? Because I knew that my overeating had put me at risk of that. Um, I was worried about falling and not being able to protect myself from the fall because my weight threw off my balance. And this is a particular concern in the winter where I live in Minnesota, 
we have winter time and it gets cold and very icy and the ice gets very dangerous and so I worried about that um in the winter. Um I over the years I had attempts at control, many, many attempts at controlling my food uh through dieting, paid weight loss programs, therapy, self-help books, wishful thinking, fantasy, denial, self-knowledge. I went to an outpatient eating disorders clinic when I was in my 20s, and these attempts did not work for me. You know, I would go on a diet or I'd go on a a period of controlled eating and I would lose weight. Sometimes I lost weight all the way down to a normal weight. I did that a few times, but the obsession never left. The fixation on food never left, and something would happen either slowly or quickly, and I would then be, you know, back into the food. I would gain all the weight that I had lost, plus I would gain more. It was like my system was having revenge for having gone on the diet. I did not know what the nature of the problem was. I just knew I couldn't stop overeating. And I felt bad about what I was doing. I felt very bad. I felt demoralized. I had had this problem for something like 30 years, and it did nothing but get worse. The sizes of the binges got bigger. The frequency of the binges got closer together. The number of times I was thinking about food and the number of times I was eating throughout the day, even when it wasn't a binge, increased to the point that food was taking up just about every gap in my day in one way or another. I was so desperate that I did something I never, ever thought I would do and was the absolute worst thing that I could have imagined, which was I came to Overeaters Anonymous. Now, for someone like me to come to Overeaters Anonymous, that is a big deal because I come from an intellectual background, and an intellectual background says you use your thinking to climb out of your problems. You use your your faculties of problem-solving Um, and your good mind and your smarts to walk your way out of it, figure it out. And so for me to do something like come to a 12-step room was um, quite the rule breaker. Uh, I experienced the social support of OA uh, quickly, which was very important to me, and I found other people who had done what I had done with food, but eventually the social support was not enough for an addict like me in order for me to experience recovery from compulsive overeating. Eventually, um, thankfully, I started learning the nature of my problem because, of course, I had just thought that the nature of my problem was overeating, that it was a matter of not having willpower and that if I marshaled enough willpower, then I could gain control over this. And I learned through OA and through introduction to the big book that that is not the nature of my problem, that the overeating is not the nature of my problem, that the overeating is a symptom of my problem, and that the nature of my problem was the inner state, what was going on inside of me that drove me back into the food. I could get abstinent, and this is including after I came to OA, I could get abstinent, but I couldn't stay abstinent Um, until I started to learn the true nature of what I was dealing with. So, yes, I examined what my binge foods were. Yes, I got a food plan. I got a sponsor. I had a home group. But in order for those things to have staying power, I had to be open to the possibility that this thing that they call a spiritual malady applied to me too and that the spiritual solution might work for me too. I didn't have any guarantees. It was a leap of faith, but I gave it a try. 
Um, I went through my first inventory, my first four through nine, with a recovered sponsor who showed me how to do an inventory of my resentments, fears, and sex conduct using the Big Book Method. And that inventory process, steps four through nine, took hold inside of me and started to turn me from an obsessive, selfish, and fearful person into a fairly stable, functioning human being who was starting to seek connection rather than discord. My insides were being sewn back together again, and I felt whole in a way I never had before. The creators of the program of recovery and the writers and editors of the big book did not stop at step nine, and thank goodness they didn't. Their own experience showed them that there was more work to do after we had done this big inventory, after we had done, you know, we took an inventory of our grocery handicaps and we shared it with someone else and we saw what the the distorted thinking that was going on and we asked that to be removed. We became willing to make amends to all the people we had harmed and then we went out and made amends. And they didn't stop there. There are a few other steps after that, beginning with step, step 10. And my own experience has shown me that there is more work to do as well after step nine. So thankfully, I had a fully robust and complete experience in step nine to clear away the wreckage of my past. And now came the time to walk through the present day and deal with the present day bumps in the road that come along. So why is this so important? Why do I need a process that I can use for present day disturbances? It's because I have the mind of an addict which is different than the mind of a non-addict. My mind as an addict is very sensitive, and it can get disturbed very easily. And when it does get disturbed, I need a place to go and a process to follow. Otherwise, the disturbances stick to me like superglue, and they block me from the sunlight of the spirit, and they push me back into darkness. And in that mental darkness, I want to medicate. And the only way I know how to medicate a thought like that is to eat. So I have a vested interest in having a process to use that will shed light on those dark places so I can function once again in the light. Step 10 says, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Step 10 in the big book is only four paragraphs. I'm going to read the entire step 10 section, and then I'm going to go back and break it down a little bit. So step 10 begins on the middle of page 84. This thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. 
we will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. If we have carefully followed directions, we have begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God-conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense. But we must go further, and that means more action. So if we go back to the first paragraph on step 10, I see five instructions in that paragraph. One, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Now, if I have a resentment, selfishness, dishonesty, and fear is embedded in that. But certainly I could have a moment of selfishness or dishonesty or fear not necessarily related to a resentment. So selfishness, I want what I want when I want it. I want it right now. I want it on my terms. I want you doing what I want when I want in the exact specifications that I want. It's all about me. And I don't care how my attitude or my actions is affecting anybody else. That's selfishness. Dishonesty, by the time we get, you know, and we've gone through the first nine steps at this point, so we've had an introduction um, to all these, but just for review. Dishonesty, by the time we get to step 10, usually um, dishonesty is not lying for most of us. It's not telling a lie. Um, Usually for us, it's about not telling, and this is true for me anyway, um, not telling the full truth about something, seeing something only in in very narrow terms. Resentment, that's something is just eating at me and it won't let go. And it's just, it's anger, feeling the anger over and over again. And then fear, fear, I'm not going to get what I want. Fear, I'm going to lose something I already have. That's the first instruction. So second instruction, when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. It doesn't say if these crop up, it says when these crop up. And I can definitely attest to that, my own experience, this stuff crops up for me. Instruction number three, we discuss them with someone immediately. Um, Now it says immediately, you know, I, I, I am not able, if I'm at work and I realize I have a resentment and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I can't necessarily leave my paid employment and go call somebody. So, but when I get off work, when I talk to my sponsor the next day, you know, as soon as is reasonably possible, I have to discuss it because I can't afford for it niggling around in me. Instruction number four, we make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. It doesn't say we're always harming someone if we have these things. We're, we didn't necessarily harm someone, but if we did, we make amends. Instruction number five, then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Um, 
And then the first full paragraph on page 85, um, there's an instruction there. You could see it as either one or two instructions. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. So again, more instruction. But the instructions are really simple, and they're fast, and they're effective. Um, I wanted to give you some examples of um, some of my Step 10s that I've done recently um, so that I can bring this um, into um, into light in a specific way. Um, so one of my um, recent resentments was the fact that my chiropractor moved out of state. I had seen him for over three years, and I had never had chiropractic care before, and it really uh, made a huge difference in my health. And um, if you've not had chiropractic care, it is uh, this process where the the, the, the doctor of chiropractic um, makes adjustments to your body. And so they are, they are um, putting their hands and their elbows and their, their, they're touching you. And um, it is a, it's health care and there's a level of physical, there's a physical experience with the health care provider that, that is unique. It's not like going to a regular clinician where you, you're talking with them and they're taking, they're taking down information, they're prescribing, they're prescribing for you. That's a certain kind of health care. This is different and I, the impact that, that his care had on me was quite profound. And um, I, I cried when I, the last time I saw, the, saw him when it was going to be my last visit, I just, I cried. And I said, you have helped me so much. I've never cried with a healthcare provider. Um, but it was, you know, I formed um, quite a deep appreciation um, for this person. And he was going out of state, um, so I wasn't going to be able to see him anymore. And, you know, I developed a resentment about it because I, well, I'll just go through my, I'll go through, I'll go through my process. So when I realized this is a resentment, I thought, you know, I've got to go through step 10 with this. So for me, what I do is I use the very same forms that I used in my step four. These are um, form, forms for resentments and fears um, that were created from, by an uh, alcoholic, uh, an AA member out of Canada. Uh, I just find the form to be very useful. You don't have to use a form, but this is that's what I do. So I'll just I'll read you what I put on my what I wrote on my form. I'm resentful at that Dr. K is gone. Um, the causes there won't be another chiropractor who will work for me. The other doctors at the clinic can't do what he did. So that's my thinking. Um, so what does this affect in me? It affects my self-esteem because when when I don't get the kind of health care that I need, I feel bad about myself. It affects my security, which is my pocketbook, because, you know, I have to pay for chiropractic care, and what if I can't find a financially feasible way of finding care at another location, et cetera. Um, it affects my ambitions, because I want chiropractic care, and I, and I want it in the way that I want it. It's, that's my ambition. And is there any fear involved? Yes. So then I said the resentment prayer, which is, you know, hey, fill in the blank is spiritually sick. So in this case, I said my attitude is spiritually sick. God, please help me show my attitude the same tolerance, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. And then I go over to the right-hand side of the column where it's asking me, the, you know, these four characteristics, selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. Where am I being selfish? I want Dr. K and no one else Ever. I don't want to go to the effort to find the type of chiropract chiropractic care I need. Dishonest. I haven't checked out other options beyond the clinic that I was going to near where I worked. Um, 
self-seeking, I want to avoid the fear that I will never have good chiropractic care again and frightened that I'll never have good chiropractic care again. And I knew, you know, when I wrote down that dishonest, I haven't checked out other options. I knew in my gut, like, oh, my gosh, that's what I've got to do. I've got to check out other options. So I knew that. And so then I, I gave this away to someone. You know, we discussed this with someone. So I called someone who I know. I wasn't going to be talking to my sponsor until the next day, but I needed to talk about this right away. So I called a recovery friend of mine who she's recovered, and she knows all about this process, and I gave this away to her. And... Right away, she said, oh, well, thank you for giving that away. She said, I have a chiropractor I can recommend to you. I said, oh, okay, great. You know, what's her name? And she gave me her name and the clinic. And um, so I I knew, I mean, I just felt it in my gut. I've got to follow up on this recommendation because that's the follow-up behavior is I've got to check out other options for chiropractic care. So I called the clinic. I made an appointment. And um, I went and checked them out, and I knew that I needed to give them a shot. Like, I couldn't just go just one time. So, and I talked with my sponsor about this, and uh, we agreed I'm going to go to this chiropractor for three months. I'm not going to go to any other chiropractor. I'm going to give them a chance to see how this can work for me. So I've been going for a couple of weeks now. Now, I can't predict the future. I don't know if this is going to be my permanent clinic, but I'm giving them a try. Um, and they are providing good care. And so that was my follow-up. Um, so we say, you know, we make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Well, I didn't harm anyone here, but what did I owe? I owed follow-up action. And what was the follow-up action? To check out that referral that my friend had given me. And if she had not given me a referral, I would have had to check around and get other referrals because that was my follow-up because there was no way that I was going to get chiropractic care unless I went out and took the risk of trying some new clinics. So that was that one. Um, here's another one um, that came up for me recently. I'm resentful at I feel so many conflicts between being comfortable and being conscious. So being, and really I should have, you know, being conscientious, um, but conscious and conscientious. So um, the conflict is, um, so I want to be, you know, an, an ethical consumer for me. What, what for me was ethics, it's something that I value, um, but I also want that to be easy and that it's not. Um, so there's, I'm in conflict, so I go to the store and there's, you know, it's easy to buy things for me that are not ethical purchases and it takes more effort to, to buy purchases that for me are ethical. So and I resent that. Um, so the causes, I don't want to have to choose. I don't want to have to choose between being comfortable and being conscientious. Um, I don't want to give up comfort. I don't want to feel like a sellout. I don't want to go through the transition of paying attention to things that really matter to me because that requires me to slow down and be intentional. And that's uncomfortable for me. So this affects my self-esteem because when I do not live into my values, I feel bad about myself. It affects my pocketbook because these are purchases, so there's money involved. It affects my ambition um, because I want a certain purchasing experience, and I don't want to have to jump through hoops to get it, so that's my ambition. And is there any fear involved? Yes. So then there's the prayer. God, again, my attitude is spiritually sick. God, please help me show my attitude the same tolerance, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. Selfish. I want no conflicts ever, meaning I don't want, I don't want these inner conflicts ever. Um, and that's selfish. Who goes through life not ever having an inner conflict? So that's selfish to want that. Dishonest. I won't negotiate. 
I won't negotiate with myself. That's dishonest because it's assuming that there's no negotiation that's possible. So the dishonesty is, hey, it's either A or B. You're either a bad person because you're making these purchases or you're a good person because you make other purchases. It's a very strident, militaristic, harsh, um, and dishonest way of looking at it. Self-seeking. I want to feel like life is easy and simple and frightened that life will never be easy and simple. So that was that one. And I... um, you know, I mean, I had this experience the other night where I went to the dollar store and I wanted, you know, I was getting um, soap and shampoo and I looked at the soap and shampoo and I looked them up online. No, they were not cruelty-free. So for me, I I really value buying cruelty-free uh, health and beauty products that are not tested on animals. And none of the products that I looked up were cruelty-free. And I'm like, I was like pissed off. Like, here it is again. You know, I've got to make this choice. So I thought, all right, I've got to put the products back on the shelf. And um, I'm pissed off. So, um I realized, you know, after writing this down, giving it away, um, what's going on is a you know lack of acceptance. And so, I realized, you know what, I need to accept that when I buy health and beauty products, I need to buy them at certain stores because certain stores have them in bounty. You know, for example, co-ops. So, you know, there's a co-op that's not very far from where I live, and so I, I discussed this with my sponsor, and I said. Then my follow-up action is I need to make a trip to the co-op to buy these products, and I'm going to do that this Thursday. And so I did. So I went on Thursday uh, in route to another appointment, stopped at the co-op. I bought shampoo, soap, dish soap, and deodorant. And, you know, it was a lot more money than it would be at a regular store, so I'm privileged I have the money to do that. But I really felt it. I really felt the, the turn of, you know what, Joe, if you value this, then you need to go, then you, this is how you need to take care of it. And so from now on, that's what I need to do. It wasn't just this one shopping trip. This is what I need to do from now on. If this is what I really value, that means I follow it through with action. I go to certain stores and I spend a certain amount of money on cruelty-free health and beauty products. Okay, and then the third one I wanted to share with you, I'm actually in the middle of. And so I wanted to share this one with you because it's it's not, I mean, none of these are done deal really, but this one, is it's not complete, but I wanted to share the process with you. So uh, I recently um, got notified of a couple of price increases that really affect me. One is my rent is going up as of December 1st by $50, which is a lot. And then um, my healthcare deductible for 2018 is doubling. And it's it's really, it's, it's a considerable, I mean, it was already a considerable amount, now it's, it was going to double. And I was just thrown by both of these pieces of news. And God, pissed me off. So, wrote out a sheet. Uh, I'm resentful at the rent and the deductible going up. The cause is it went up so much, exclamation point. A 50% increase in the deductible, exclamation point. A 6% increase in the rent, exclamation point. What does this affect? It affects my self-esteem um, because I, I tell a story to myself that somehow if there's a, if there's a price increase, it throws me somehow that that says something about me. Um, it, you know, it makes me feel bad about myself. Um, and and uh, and it affects my security. That's my pocketbook. Um, it affects my ambition because I would rather just not ever have any price increases. Thank you very much. And is any fear involved? Yes. Okay, resentment prayer. This attitude is spiritually sick. God, please help me show my attitude the same tolerance, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. 
selfish. I judge this as bad and wrong. I want only modest increases in prices always, and I want it to be easier to switch landlords and health plans if I want to. Because those are choices. I mean, those are options. I could move somewhere else and I could switch health plans, but I want it to be easy to do that. Um, And it's not. Dishonest. I see myself as being exempt from the decisions about the economy. I'm in another fellowship that deals with um, financial stability. um, And because I'm in that other program, I should never have to be shocked or startled or angry about prices. They should always be emotionally flat. And self-seeking, I want to avoid the feeling that my money is being taken from me, that I have no voice in the matter, and frightened that my money is being taken from me and I have no choice in the matter and no voice in the matter. That feels bad. I feel demoralized. Um, I feel like a victim. And so that was that was what I wrote down. I gave that away, and then um, I had to look at okay, so that's like giving it away. So what's what are the characteristics here that I need to deal with? Well, um, one is to take a step back, and um, and I got some really good feedback from my sponsor as well. You know, she said, you know, Joe, you're not running their show, and that was really helpful because. When, you know, a landlord gets to decide what their prices are, that's their show. The health plan administrator gets to decide what the deductible is. That's their show. They get to decide that. And I I do not get to tell them what their prices are supposed to be. Um, and so with one of these, with the, with the rent going up, I had this thing, I had this thing in my mind that, um, that they had, sent me a letter saying, your rent's going up $50. That was in my mind. So I went back to the letter that they sent me, and it was actually quite detailed. And they said, you know, our vendors are charging more, and these prices are going up, and we have to raise your rent. Here are your options. You can sign a one-year lease, a six-month lease, or a month-to-month lease. And they gave all this detailed information. I thought, so that was necessary for me. That was a follow-up action so that I could see that they don't have it in for me, they're explaining what the rationale of the price increase is, and I can choose among those three options. And then the deductible going up. Um, so the follow-up action there is, and I have more follow-up to do with the rent because I, um, I'm going to go back into the previous rent increases, and I just want to see, has the rent gone up by this much before? I hadn't thought that it had, but maybe it has. So I need, I need to collect more information for myself. That's a follow-up action. And then for the deductible uh, going up, I need to call the health plan administrator, and I need to get information from them. But I need to do it in a genuinely inquisitive manner. I need to not call them and say, hey, what the hell do you think you're doing? You know, what are you trying to do, gouge me? Um, I, I don't get away with that. I just, my system does not get away You know, I don't get away with my system being like that. My system is very sensitive. And so I do need to follow up because if my fear is that I have no voice, then my follow-up is to have a voice, which is not to be a bull in a china shop, but to take reasonable steps, which is, it's a reasonable thing. Call and ask, can you, can you tell me what the, um, you know, what the thinking was there? This, you know, it's a lot of money. And I just, you know, I just need to know what the, um, what the rationale is um, for this. And, uh, and then, you know, accept their answer. You know, that I, I cannot call them in an argumentative, I can't argue with them because um, I don't get away with that. And that's not, 
that's not the clean follow-up behavior. The clean follow-up behavior is just to call and have a conversation with them and also to understand that whatever representative I'm talking to, they, that's not the person who decided this. Because customer service representatives are not the people who make these kinds of decisions. So I really have to keep that in mind. And I will say, and I've said this before when I've, when, when I've been on the phone with customer service representatives, I will say, I know this wasn't your decision, but can you help me understand um, the, the decision-making process? So this, is, so this one isn't done yet. I'm, I'm in the middle of this. Um, and so um, as you can see, you know, are the new disturbances, and this, true, this is true in a four-step too, but in a ten-step, the disturbance, it does, not, it does not have to be a resentment toward a particular person. It can be a resentment in, toward a situation. And um, a resentment toward a situation is equally as serious as a resentment toward a person because it is a resentment. And so it has to be treated with the same level of seriousness um, because that's how that's the that's the function of resentments is that they block me um, from a full experience of a power greater than myself. So those were um, some examples. Um, I wanted to share what um, what I believe are some misperceptions about Step 10 and what we do with these new disturbances. Um, misperception one, that we can solve a new disturbance simply by praying about it. And um, this is something I will hear once in a while. Well, pray about it. Um, and there's a, um, there's a story toward the back of the big book where the person did this. And sometimes people will refer to this story as a reference point for only praying for someone you resent. So I want to uh, read the excerpt from this story and then comment on it. So this is in the story Freedom from Bondage. Um, it's the second to the last story in the fourth edition. Uh, this excerpt is on page uh, 551 and 552. This resentment was against my mother, and it was 25 years old. I had fed it, fanned it, and nurtured it as one might a delicate child, and it had become as much a part of me as my breathing. It had provided me with excuses for my lack of education, my marital failures, personal failures, inadequacy, and, of course, my alcoholism. And though I really thought I had been willing to part with it, now I knew I was reluctant to let it go. One morning, however, I realized I had to get rid of it, for my reprieve was running out, and if I didn't get rid of it, I was going to get drunk, and I didn't want to get drunk anymore. In my prayers that morning, I asked God to point out to me some way to be free of this resentment. During the day, a friend of mine brought me some magazines to take to a hospital group I was interested in. I looked through them. A banner across one featured an article by a prominent clergyman in which I caught the word resentment. He said, in effect, if you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the person or thing that you resent, you will be free. If you will ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks and you will find you have come to mean it and to want it for them. And you will realize where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassionate understanding and love. It worked for me then, and it has worked for me many times since, and it will work for me every time I am willing to work it. 
Um, I can't argue with anyone's experience, but I can say that my experience is that just praying for someone does not relieve me of my resentments. It just never has. And if that had worked for me, I wouldn't be an Overeaters Anonymous because if that's all I needed to do to relieve myself of a resentment, I wouldn't need a Step 10 process. Um, I wouldn't need um, a sponsor or recovered people to give this away to. I wouldn't need the follow-up actions. I mean, all I would just just pray for them. Um, and I I love the stories in the Big Book, and I um, there are many beautiful, wonderful passages in those stories. However, I never use a passage in any of the stories as a substitute for the instructions of the steps in the Big Book. So I really want to um, clarify that. I also think that praying for someone, just praying for someone, puts the focus on them, and it, does, it takes the focus off of ourselves. And we need to focus on ourselves because we need to see where has my thinking been wrong. Because step 10 says we make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Well, how am I going to know if I harmed anyone unless I go through this inventory process, unless I see where my thinking is off or my behavior has been off or my words have been off? So perception number one, we cannot solve our new disturbances simply by praying about it. The other thing I want to say is step 10 is a prayer. The inventory process is a prayer. It is me saying to my higher power, I really want to be free of this, and I'm willing to be free of this, and so I'm going to walk through this process, and I'm going to have you take it from me. Misperception number two, that we can take care of new disturbances by going to 90 meetings in 90 days. Now, going to 90 meetings in 90 days might be a wonderful thing. And I think it probably, I've never done it, but I think it, could, I think it could be fun and challenging. You'd probably learn a lot. But going to 90 meetings in 90 days is not going to relieve us of our new disturbances. Step 10 is going to relieve us. Um, so a meeting, I never disparage going to a meeting, but a meeting is not a substitute for step 10. Misperception number three that we can, quote, let them go. Have you ever heard that? Well, I think I just need to let it go. Uh, that doesn't work for us addicts. Um, if I could just let it go, I wouldn't be here because I wouldn't have to go. I wouldn't have to go through all this. Um, so that that doesn't work. I think that is wishful thinking, and it's just it's ineffective. Once I have a new disturbance, like a new resentment or a new fear, but a particularly a resentment, I mean, it bonds itself to me. You know, have you look? You know, you go to a hardware store and you look at bonding agents. Okay, so these are substances that allow one piece of material to bond with another one, and some of those bonding agents are so powerful. Well, a resentment is a very powerful bonding agent. It's, it just attaches itself uh, to me, and I can't let it go. I'm unable to let it go. I have to have it taken from me. A power greater than myself takes it from me through the process of step 10. Misperception number four, that we can be free of it by making a promise of future behavior. Now, what if instead of actually going to check out that new chiropractor, which was an action step taken out of willingness, I had said, well, I'm going to be open to the possibility of other chiropractors. I mean, that's really vacuous. It's meaningless. It's making a promise of future behavior. 
and that does not affect the change in us. You know, the big book talks about a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. That's in the appendix in the back in the spiritual experience. Well, that personality change has to continue. And making promises of future behavior does not affect a personality change. It keeps us stuck. Misperception number five, confusing step 10 with step 11. I hear this a lot. I hear people say, I'm doing my step 10 at night. Okay, well, that's the nightly review, which is on page 86. That is step 11. That is not step 10. And I think that's important because step 10 is for new disturbances. Step 11 is to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand God. Um, they're different. They're, they're related, but they're different, they're different steps. And so, um, and I think it's also important to, when people say my step 10 at night, if you think that that's your step 10, then all you're going to be doing at night is looking for new disturbances. And step 10 has us, I mean, I'm sorry, step 11 has us doing more than that. If you read the paragraph on page 86, when we retire at night, and it's got all those questions, which is more than, is it, you know, do we have new disturbances? Uh, Misperception number six not wanting to do step 10 or not believing that we have to do step 10 because we haven't harmed anyone. Because I, I, this has happened a number, uh, a number of times. Well, I'll tell a sponsee, that sounds like a resentment, do a resentment sheet. And she'll say, but I haven't harmed anyone. Well, that's not the question. The question is not, have you harmed anyone? The question is, do you have a new disturbance? And if you have a new disturbance, the, the big book is clear what we're supposed to do with that. So um, it says we make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. You don't have to have harmed anyone if you've harmed anyone. Um, and then also uh, regarding the word harm, um, I often, well, I will, I'll always tell sponsees this, um, you know, the word harm can often get in the way of our um, being clear about what they're talking about. Um, so if the word harm gets in your way. It doesn't get in it doesn't get in my way. I I think it's a perfectly fine word and I use that word. But for some people the word harm is like a block. So I will say, we'll use the word affect. Who did I affect? So, you know, if you affect if you affected someone, then that needs to be righted and that does not necessarily mean an apology. Very often in step ten we don't owe an apology. Sometimes we do, but usually by the time we get to step 10, we've done our apologies in step 9. And step 10, it's not, it's not an apology, but it is follow-up behavior. So if I have, um, you know, this, this has come up, you know, if, if I have ha- had a resentment towards someone and it's someone that I have a relationship with, that resentment is interfering with me, interacting with them in a genuine way, and I'm withholding. So I've been withholding myself because of the resentment. So I go through a step 10 process. Well, what's, what's, how have I affected them? Well, I haven't given them my genuine self. So, what is, so what's the follow-up? I go and give them my genuine self. I remember I had um, a resentment toward a coworker one time, and, uh, and I realized, um, you, know, and I, and I, you know, I did the resentment sheet and I gave it away, and I realized that what I owed her was going back into work the next day and saying good morning to her in a friendly way. And so that's what I did, and then it was done. So I didn't have to, I didn't have to apologize. I hadn't harmed her. But I had affected her by withholding my friendly professional self. And so I went back into work and I gave her my friendly professional self. I think this is really important um, because I think this can come up um, a lot. This fear like, oh, no, you're going to make me apologize when I don't own a man. No, it's it's not about that. Okay, and then um, 
the last misperception that I wanted to address is that um, that this is a maintenance step. This is not a maintenance step. Um, I don't think anything, frankly, about this program of recovery has anything to do with maintaining anything. It is about growing. It's about moving forward. It's about changing. Now, I did want to address the language in the language in step ten might make us think that oh well we're just maintaining um, because it talks about um, staying in fit spiritual condition. Um, let's see if I can find that now. Um, okay. Um, there's the what we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Um, and then up above, that is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. Keep in fit spiritual condition, maintenance of our spiritual condition makes it sound like you might think, well, I just, I'm just maintaining. That language would make us think, well, I'm just maintaining. The way that I maintain my spiritual condition is to grow and change. That's how it's maintained. It is not maintained just by maintenance. That just doesn't work for me. Um, and it says... Um, I just wanted to point to another um, sentence, if I can find it here. Um, it talks about, um, okay, okay. I can't find it. It's only four paragraphs and I can't find it. But anyway, it's, you know, it's, we are called on to grow and change, to continue to uh, be challenged in our assumptions and to be willing to move uh, forward out of them. Um, okay, the, so then there is, there's one other thing I wanted to point out, which is um, this third paragraph on page 85 in the middle of the page. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. You know, it is easy to let up on this because it's a continual process. And I say that, I point that out um, not as a, a loophole, you know, not as an excuse. This is not an excuse to let up on the spiritual program of action, but it's a warning sign. It's easy to let up on it. And then they say, we are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. And as Leah pointed out, you know, if we don't maintain our spiritual condition through growth, we will, the obsession comes back. And then if we don't tend to that, we're going back into the food. Okay. So I just wanted to point out again another sentence. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. I mean, this is, this is a daily process. It doesn't mean we're going to have disturbances every day. We just have to be mindful of them uh, every day. Um, and, oh, I also wanted to point out something. Um, the original manuscript of the big book 
did not have that phrase contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. The original manuscript just had the sentence, what we really have is a daily reprieve, period. And then the editing, they added contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. I'm so glad they added that phrase. That is so critical Um, because it's once again, you know, and throughout the big book they do this. If you do this, then this. If this, then this. There are no promises in the big book without a commitment and a willingness to do legwork on my part. You know, it isn't just handed to me out of the blue. It's not a, it's not a magic wand. I have to, I have to seek it um, through this legwork, and I call it a legwork footwork. It's not, it's not a chore. It's not a burden, but it is effort. It, it is spiritual effort. And so I'm so glad that I'm so glad that they that they added that in in the editing. Um, and I also wanted to point out that in the original manuscript, there is a lot of you and your and, you know, and in these four paragraphs, there are almost 50 references to you and your. And in the editing, they change it to we, us, and our. Uh, and that's really critical, too, because they're sharing their experience, and I'm just sharing my experience today with you, um, the, the critical nature of Step 10. And just as an aside, I would argue that it was not just the writing of the big book, but the editing of the big book that made it what it is, because that phrase, contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition, is so critical. So that is my experience of Step 10, and I will pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope, your clear examples and personal insights regarding Step 10. Thank you very much for your service this morning. Joe's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. We're going to transition right now to a question and answer segment. If you have a question for Joe, you'll need to press star 1 to unmute. Identify yourself by first name and first initial of your last name. Please, who would like to ask a question? Jody, Stephanie K. This is Larry K. Stephanie K. Stephanie K. Harlan G. Gotcha, Harlan. Gotcha, Larry. Madeline R. Madeline R. Elaine T. Okay, we're going to stop there. Teresa, gotcha. What's the first initial of your last name, Teresa? D is in dog. D is in dog, and there was someone I missed before Elaine T. and after Madeline R. Maggie S. Maggie. All righty, let's go with this group. Jody, you're up. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. This is Jody EQ, gratefully recovered in California. Thank you so much, Joe. That was a wonderful presentation on step 10. I'm wondering if you could just review quickly your definitions for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, and just enumerate again those misconceptions if that that wouldn't take too long uh okay sure and i just want to say too i found the sentence i was looking for before in the first sentence of step 10 it says our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness so they're they're talking about growth okay um so jody you're saying you're wanting the um this is how I see it. Um, okay, so the selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Um, well, selfishness is I want what I want when I want it, and I don't care how my attitude uh, or my behavior is affecting somebody else. That's selfish. 
Um, dishonesty is, you know, I'm either telling a lie, uh, but, you know, by the time you get to step 10, it's usually not a lie. But it's, it, there's a piece of truth that I'm not telling. There's a part of the big picture that I'm not seeing. Um, that's dishonesty. Um, resentment is, you know, it's just, it's this, you know, niggling, the, the anger just replays itself over and over. And then the fear is, I'm afraid I'm not going to get what I want. Or I'm afraid I'm going to lose something I already have. Um, so that's, that's that. Um, misperceptions, uh, very quickly, uh, that we can solve them by praying about them, that we can take care of them by going to 90 meetings in 90 days, that we can just let them go, that we can make a promise of future behavior, that we confuse it with step 11, that we don't think we have to do step 10 because we we haven't harmed anyone, and that this is and and that this is a maintenance step. Those are misperceptions. Thank you, Jody EQ, for your question. Betsy K. Star one to unmute Betsy K. Betsy Kay. Let's move on to Larry Kay, and then we'll come back. Larry? Uh, I'm, I'm here. Can you hear me? Can you I hear, hear me, you well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, thanks for your service. Hey, Joe, th- thank you for your service. Really appreciate your your presentation this morning. Um, so, um, Boy, I, I really agree with what you had to say, and I think sometimes, and there's a question following this little little statement, I think dishonesty and, and self-deception in particular in, in program, not just OA, but 12-step programs, is often not only socially normative, but it's it's in fact often culturally reinforced, and you gave some really good examples. Um, you know, there's others. Keep coming back. You know, wait for the miracle to happen. You wait for the pixie dust, right? And um, and you gave some good examples of 90 meetings in 90 days. So my question for you, Joe, is from a program perspective in your own experience, would you speak to how the fudge factor can trip us up in program? In other words, the amount that, that we feel we can lie uh, in program to ourselves while still thinking ourselves as honest, virtuous, members in OA and how that fudge factor, if you agree with that premise, how that fudge factor can trip us up. Thanks again for your yeah, well, um, share. Yeah, thanks for the question, um, Larry. You know, I'm a fan of saying this program is not about right and wrong. It's about what works. And lying to ourselves doesn't work. And I think it's really imperative, um, you know, in the Step 10 instructions, uh, we discuss them with someone immediately. So we don't, you know, we can lie to ourselves when we're just having the internal dialogue it's easy to lie to ourselves. When we discuss it with someone else, when we discuss it with another recovered member who's, who knows what this process is, who understands the importance of it, and whose only interest is to help us see where our thinking is wrong, we are less likely to get away with that. That's one thing. And the other thing, those of us who have recovered have a responsibility to, send, to, to communicate a clear message and to remind, to, to you know, bring our sponsees and other people that we're working with or newcomers back to the text and say, these are the instructions, this is what works, give this a try. Because if you're, if you're in you know, continual mental pain, obviously what you're doing isn't working. So how about try this over here? So that would be my uh, answer to that. 
Thanks so much, Joe. Thanks, Larry Kay. Another shout-out for Betsy Kay, if she's available. Star 1 to unmute. All right, perhaps not. Harlan G. Thank you, Leah, and thank you for your service. And this was wonderful. Thank you so much for your special edition this morning. Okay, that was just fantastic. Um, I wanted to get your opinion on something that is something I run into for many, many years. And I'm just going to read a sentence, and I will ask a question here. We vigorously commence, I'm on page 84. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. And what that tells me is that there's another misconception, and I want your opinion on this, that we don't begin step 10 until we're done with nine, and nothing could be further from the truth. Once more, we vigorously commence this way of living, step 10, as we cleaned up the past. What steps do we use to clean up the past? Eight and nine. Your thoughts. Well, I would say that, um, yes, that's absolutely right. This this way of living, meaning I take that to, to mean that this, the inventory process, the process of inventorying these disturbances and then going through a process of becoming free of them so that we can go move on into steps 11 and 12. Um, I think step the, the initial inventory, steps 4 through 9, um, are de- is designed to um, clear away the wreckage of the past, whether the past was, you know, for a lot of us, the past goes, it goes way, way back. So by the time we get into recovery, um, you know, we've been around a few years, and so it can go all the way back to when we're three and four years old. It can go back to when we're 10 years old and in teenagers, and it goes, way, it goes back a long time. That's the, that's the, so the initial inventory is designed for the, for the past, the way I see step 10 is it's designed for the present, you know, because something can happen today and I need to inventory it today so that it doesn't get a hold in me and take root in there, create the obsession, send me back to the food, and now 10 years later I go back to OA. Now I've got to inventory it 10 years later. It's, it's for today. So I don't know if that answers your question, Harlan. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Harlan. Madeline R., your turn. Star one to unmute. Thank you very much. This is Madeline R., so appreciative of the share today. Thank you so much, Joe. I, my question is this. Giving away the 10th step, uh, once I've done my sheet and then giving it away, I just wanted to hear again from you how you give it away. Is it a call? Is it an email? Is it a text? Is it both? Um, is it to your sponsor always or could it be somebody else? That was my question. Thank you so much. I always give it away by phone. That's the fastest and most direct way for me to give it away. I, I know that texting and emailing, I mean, I love texting and emailing for, for what they're good for, but I think sometimes we overuse them. And uh, for me, there is no substitute for a live, direct conversation with someone. Someone can hear my voice. She can hear how I'm talking about this. Um, And then she can give feedback right away, and I can hear her voice. So I'm a huge fan of that's how I do it. I do it by phone. I just I don't do it any other way. I mean, if I were, um, but the exception would be, 
if I'm traveling overseas, I've taken a couple of trips to Europe, and I do bring my computer and I stay in touch with my sponsor and others um, via email. And if I need to give it away and it's, it's the middle of the night here, but it's daylight there and I need to send it, I mean, I'll send it by email. But that's really an exception to the rule. Otherwise, I'm doing it by phone. Thanks, Madeline R., for your question. Maggie S., star one to unmute. Hi, this is Maggie S. Um, thank you so much for your um, talk and the clear explanations today. Uh, I heard a lot of things that were really helpful. So one of the question I have for you is, um, so I have noticed a lot of jealousy about relationships and feeling left out of relationships coming up lately um, in doing my tent. And you talked about follow-up action. So I can see the selfishness, the dishonesty, and so forth in, in my attitude and my behaviors. So now I'm wondering, what do you have any experience with that? How do you follow up with jealousy? That's my question, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think necessarily the question is how do you follow up with jealousy. I think you go, you go through the process, you write it all down, you get your thinking out on paper, and then you give it away to someone. And really, I've heard Step 10 uh, referred to as 4 through 9, that it's the same process as 4 through 9. We're just doing it more quickly. Um, and so the question would be, where are you? So jealousy is, okay, so you're jealous. So there's, you know, you would have to inventory where are you being selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? You, the person you're giving this away to can help you with that um, in, this, in, this, um, in this scenario that, that you're in, the, the kind of thinking. And she can help you or he can help you um, see where your thinking is off. And then once you identify where your thinking is off, then it's six and seven. Hey, I see where my thinking is off. I'm willing to be relieved of this. God, hey, remove this from me. You know, step six and seven that are only one paragraph each in the big book. Um, and then it's, oh, okay, I'm willing to be free of this. Now, now what follow-up behavior, what, what am- either amends or follow-up behavior do I need to follow through on so that I can demonstrate to my higher power that I really do want to be free of this and I'm asking my higher power to remove it from me? That would be my answer, Maggie. Okay, got it. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Maggie. Yes. Elaine T. Star one, Tanya. Hi, this is Elaine T. from Pittsburgh. Thank you so much for your share, Joe. Um, I'm a new, fairly new sponsor in this um, method. I'm 24 years in OA, but I think what I missed most was 10, 11, and 12. Anyway, um, so I'm concerned about leading my sponsees. Could you, um, you probably did touch on it, but could you reiterate, like, what steps, what kind of time do you spend? How do you mentor them through the process of Step 10? And and if you would, um, Step 11, do you spend time with them discussing, you know, options um, or, um, yeah, that's my question. Thank you so much. Sure. Well, since the topic this morning is step 10, I'm going to keep my comments to step 10. Um, and uh, yes, I mean, I, I guide them through step 10, be- and it's fairly simple because they've just gone through their four through nine. So they've just gone through that. 
So then when they have a new disturbance, I say, this is the same process as you used in 4 through 9. Get out your resentment sheet, get out your fear sheet. If it's sex conduct, get out your sex conduct sheet. And it's the same process. And I um, will push them to go through the step 10 relatively quickly. You can't force it, it you, because you can't force the sometimes, and sometimes in step 10, this is an interesting aspect of step 10 for me, sometimes I will fill out the sheet and I'm still not getting to the core of it. I'm still, you know, it's like, it seems like it's more like academic or something. And it just, it, it's not striking me in my gut. And, and I know that it isn't striking me in my gut because I've struck, I've been struck in my gut so much. Like, oh yeah, that's what this is. So, um, and sometimes that will happen for sponsees. So they'll fill out their sheet in step 10. And they'll give it away, but they're just not, they're not hitting on the core of it. And so I will say, this is something that I've done that's been really helpful. I will say, go back and read step six in the AA 12 and 12. Step six in the AA 12 and 12, if you are stuck in identifying what your part, I shouldn't say your part, not your part. We resolutely look for our own mistakes. That's what the big book says. Um, so if you're having trouble identifying that, Read the chapter in, in Step 6 in the AA 12 and 12, and invariably it will dislodge it for you. That's happened for me. I'm a couple paragraphs in like, oh, my God, that's what it is. That's where, that's where my mistake was. Um, so I will do that with them. So it's, it's really um, – Step 10, honestly, it's one of the easiest things that I ever teach sponsees because they've already been through the process because they just came through Step 9. So that's my answer, Elaine. Thank you, Elaine T. Teresa D. Star one to unmute. Hi, hi. Sorry about that. I was having a hard time unmuting. Um, on the the, can you hear me? I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, Joe, on the tenth. Step form, um, well, actually the uh, form that's used for the fourth step and uh, used for the tenth step. Um, Could you please tell me, and I think you've already described it, but I didn't really catch it, the difference between um, selfish and self-seeking? Sure. Well, I can just tell you how I use it. Um, Selfish is I want what I want when I want it. I want it right now. I want it on my terms. I want it on my timing. I don't care how it affects you. It's all about me, 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 myself, and I. That's selfish. Self-seeking, I think, and there are different approaches to self-seeking. This is how I use it. It's helpful for me. Self-seeking, the way I use it is I want someone else to do something or not do something so that I can feel a certain way or so that I can avoid feeling a certain way. I want, I'll just make something up, you know, I want you not to fill in the blank. I want you not to ask me a question about X so that I can avoid feeling uncomfortable because I don't know the answer. So I don't want you asking me the question. So I want you to do a behavior. I want you to refrain from a behavior so that I can be protected from feeling embarrassed. That's self-seeking. That's how I use it anyway. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Teresa. Mm-hmm. Who else has a question this morning? Let me just interject at this point the share ID for this presentation, 10602, 10602 for today's Sunday special edition. Who else has a question this morning? Star 1 to unmute your first name and the first initial of your last name, please. Suji. Barbara E. Madam. Sally P. 
Judith R. After Matt, who did I miss? Sally P. Sally P. Judith R. Judith R. Brianna S. Okay. Is that Brianna? Lynn F. Yes. Leah S. Joe, are you okay going over 10 a.m. Eastern? Yes, I am. No problem. Okay. Uh, thus far, I have Sue G., Barbara E., Matt M., Sally P., Judith R., Brianna S., Lynn F., Leah S. Who did I miss? Okay. Got everybody in the group. Sue G., go right ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, Joe, beautiful presentation. So clear for me. I've been having struggles uh, figuring out so many people do the 10th step so many different ways. And on the sheet from the guy from Canada for resentment, it does mention doing the resentment prayer. And um, when I take it to God first, I always do the resentment prayer. I have not been doing the sick man prayer because it was sick man, and I, I, I appreciate you bringing out the sick ideas. Um, but what what is your uh, idea on doing the resentment uh, prayer? Well, um, the resentment prayer is essential. If whatever prayer you're going to do is essential. So if you want to do the, you know, the prayer that they have in the step four instruction, um, I mean, that's the one that I use. But somebody pointed something out to me recently, um, and uh, it was the, the prayer in that story in the back um, is, actually, is actually a beautiful prayer. And if you want to do that prayer instead of the sick man's prayer, I think mean, that's totally fine, as long as you do it in the context of the process as a whole and that you're not just praying. Um, so I, I, that would be my answer to that. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Barbara E., your turn. Thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, wonderful. Joe, thank you for that instructional, wise, caring, clear presentation. I have a question. I was looking at the 10 steps as I do it, and I'm not sure whether it differs or not. The who is column one, the what the person or institution or situation is, then what it affects, my emotional security because, my personal relations because, and then my part in it, the character defects, what I would do differently, and finally, not a column, but just asking what would God want me to be. Is that what you said, or did I miss here some of them? Thank you. Here's the the form that I have that is, the form that I use is the most exacting to the big book of any of the forms that I've seen. So this is the form that I use. It was the form I was introduced to. I didn't even know there were other forms out there until after I did my first inventory. I'm glad I didn't know they were out there because there are forms out there that veer off the big book method, and I am a big book thumper, and I I stick to the big book method. So the form that I use um, aligns itself with the fourth step um, in the big book, and this is what I use for my step 10. So there are five columns. I'm resentful at person, institution, or principle. 
the causes. It, this is like, okay, I'm really pissed off. This is where I get to put, I'm so pissed off, and this is unfair, and this person did this, and this situation is this. That's the causes. It affects my, these are just check marks. You don't have to say why. These, this just, did it affect, yes or no, um, or just put a check mark where, where it applies, self-esteem, security, ambitions, personal relations, sex relations, and fear. And then there's the resentment prayer. And the purpose of, the function of the resentment prayer is to start dislodging me from the resentment so that I can then look at, we resolutely looked at our own mistakes. Um, and then the, um, the, then where, where are my mistakes? It's where I'm selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened, those four qualities. And so it, whatever resentment I have, that's the process to run it through. And then there's the fear, the fear process, which I didn't go over in my talk, but there's a fear process too. So the fear form, the, the fear, you know, the, there's a fear form um, that's equally good because um, it's exacting the big book method. What do I fear? Why do I fear it? Where is my trust and reliance? Does self-reliance, you know, where is my trust and reliance uh, on my finite self or on an infinite God? Did self-reliance work? Yes or no? And then the fear prayer is, God, please remove my fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. Um, there is a new version of that form, um, which I really disagree with, um, that I think it can, is veering off the big book method. I do not agree with it. Um, and the addition to the form is, what would God have me be? So we're supposed to come up with, what would God have me be? My answer to that is, you know what? God would have you be someone who goes through steps, the rest of the steps with this. You don't have to come up with what God would have you be. Um, I think that complicates the process. I think it makes it take longer. Um, there may be people that that, that, that helps, but I, I don't believe it says in the big book that we are supposed to come up with the answer for what God would have us be. We become what God would have us be by going through the steps. So I hope that answers your question, Barbara. Thank you so much. It really does. So it included in that is not what I would do differently next time. That is not part of it. Right. That's not part of it because remember when I said we do not make a promise of future behavior. That's what I would do better next time is a promise of future behavior. That's not part of the inventory process. Thank you so much. Thank you for clarifying it. Sure. Yes. Thank you, Barbara E. Matt M. Star one time mute, Matt. Hi, thank you. I'm here. Uh, thank you, Joe, for your presentation. Um, what do you do? How do you deal when you have to do a 10 step and you deal with justified anger? Because there's been times where I didn't want to do a 10 step when I've been just, the anger feels justified if the person has wronged me in some way. How do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you deal with that with step 10. Because that's what justified anger is it's a resentment. And we can't afford that. That'd be my answer to that. Thanks, Matt. Sally P. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Sally. Sorry, I have fumbling fingers this morning. Um, Joe, thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Um, the Virgo in me has to know what is the old version of the fourth step and how can I obtain a copy so I can do it perfectly? Okay, well, first of all, there's no such thing as doing it perfectly. I know, I'm um, joking. There, there's only doing what works. Um, the, uh, you know, these forms are out there. You can go on, um, 
there are websites that have these forms. You can get them from someone else who uses them. I, you can contact me. I have um, I have these in digital form, um, just photocopies of them. I can send them to you. Um, they're you know they're they're floating around. It's they're simple enough to get them. Thank you, Judith R. Star one touch. Thank you, Lynn. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Joe. This was really helpful. I have two questions. One is, um, I have a really hard time realizing when I'm disturbed. Um, and thank God for that time, because now I know that I have a hard time realizing when I'm disturbed. And so I usually catch it at the end of the day in my step 11. Um, so I'm just wondering how how do you do it and and is it okay to catch it in 11? I've heard that it is. I've heard that it's not. Um, and the other question is, um, do you write out or think out before you call the person, or do you just call the person and, and talk it out? Well, in answer to your first question, um, the instructions in the big book are very clear that we do capture these in step 11, because it says on page 86, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? I mean, it's right there in the book. So, yes, we, we capture it. Um, and I think the, the big book is just so excellently written and edited as to allow us to have this very robust experience where we don't they're, – they're not allowing loopholes. Um, so if, if you don't catch it during the day, you may catch it you, – you can catch it at night. Um, the most effective way of doing this is – Writing, you know, writing it out, you know, as I demonstrated by using using the form or using the process. No matter where you catch it, if you catch it in the middle of the day, write it out if you can. Or you could, you might be, you might have to wait till at night to write it out. But you need need to write it out and give it away. It's the same process. If you if you capture something in step eleven, and you need to do a step ten with it, the step ten process is the same as if you caught it in the middle of the day before you did your step 11 at night. Got it. Thank you. Brianna S., star one to unmute. Hi, guys. Um, thanks so much for your share. It was beautiful, and it's really helped me a lot today. Um, so my question is, you know, the idea to resent is to just, you know, refill. Sometimes it's not necessarily angry that I'm feeling. I just keep like reliving situations um, or just like keep dwelling on things and then I usually try to inventory them. My question is like, as far as like losing somebody and reliving or like refeeling that grief and that sadness, you know, I'm not angry that, um, that she passed away, but it just, it's just really hard, and I just was wondering if you had any experience with dealing with that kind of pain and if it, if it helps with step, um, to do step 10 on it. So uh, that's my question. Thanks very much. Yeah, um, if you're refeeling something over and over, it's a resentment. And you may be resentful that you're in grief. That may be the resentment. And, that you know, resentments are not about logic. Um, there, it has nothing to do with common sense. It has nothing to do with being rational. It, it, it is what it is, and it's very important to just state that clearly. I mean, I've had, I've had step tens where I've had resentments toward my cats, the weather, um, you know, the aging process. I mean, 
It has nothing to do with, with common sense. If, when you try to figure it out, your life becomes unmanageable. That's what makes our, life un, our lives unmanageable when we try to control a situation, when we try to control our thinking. So if you're refeeling it over and over again, my understanding of what resentment is is it, it comes from, um, this is a, a teaching that I heard a big book, a big book teacher taught that um, it teaches that resentment comes from, is it Latin, resentire, which means to refeel. I may not be, I may not be 100% accurate about, about that. Um, so th- this is the process. And having it be hard, it's hard when you resist it. That's what makes it hard. It's not hard to do it. It's hard to resist it. You know, there's an AA speaker who says, there's no pain in change. There's only pain in resisting change. And when we resist doing the Step 10 work, that's what's hard. I also heard you say you try to inventory it. There is no such thing as try in this program. We're either doing it or we're not doing it. So I would suggest that you take a leap of faith. And if, you, if you're having a hard time figuring out what the resentment actually is, talk to somebody about it and get some help, either from your sponsor or from someone else, to, inventory, to actually inventory it. Not try inventory it, but actually inventorying it and then seeing what comes of that. Thank you, Brianna. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Lynn F., star one to unmute. Uh, good morning, and thank you so much, Joe, for your um, wonderful share this morning. Um, two things. One, um, you mentioned um, when you... Um, you know, you do your you do your step ten, and you have a follow up action, um, and and you take that action. Um, for me, somewhere where I get tripped up is that um, that behavior that I'm trying to that I've now become aware of. It's not always easy to change, or I forget and I slip back. Um, could you just speak on perhaps how you would maintain or how you would grow with a new behavior? And then secondly, if you could answer, um, the, if you could share the resource uh, with, uh, that you're referring to with the uh, inventory pages. Thank you. Sure. Well, um, the, the new behavior comes out of what was I not doing? You know, how, where is my thinking gone awry? And then the remedy for that, the follow-up behavior, is the the counter to that, I would say. So with the chiropractic care, the example that I gave, the follow-up behavior is checking out other chiropractic care. And the follow-up behavior is always simple. It doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable. In fact, it's not going to be comfortable because my ego is being challenged. Because you know what my ego wants to do? My ego wants me to feel like a victim. My ego wants me to feel helpless. Um, My ego wants me to stay in the resentment. It wants to stay in that victimhood and not take action. And so the ego is uncomfortable with willing action. So it is going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it is. Yes, it is uncomfortable. Yes, it was uncomfortable to go to the store the other day and buy those products. It was uncomfortable to go into work that next day and say good morning to my uh, coworker. All the follow-up actions are uncomfortable. I did a big step 10 two years ago, and uh, my follow one of my follow-up actions was to have a conversation with my boss to tell her that I had a health 
matter that I needed to tend to and that I needed to um, have this health care once a week and that um, it would help me if I could um, take the take time out of the day, go to this health care, but then have, you know, work from home, then go to the appointment, then come into work and making sure I still get my 40 hours in, but having that, having that adjustment in my schedule, that was not comfortable. But I did that because one of the things that I realized from a, a step 10 inventory was that I have a mental health condition that requires weekly care, weekly professional care. So I've been going to a counselor every week for two years now because I accepted through the step 10 process that just like with food addiction, I need a program of recovery and I need a fellowship for that. I have a mental health condition that I need help with, that I need care for weekly. And so that was not comfortable. Um, I had follow-up action with regard to my physical health. I had a series of um, appointments with healthcare providers to check up on my physical condition. I had a physical and I had a biopsy and um, I had an eye exam and that was not comfortable. So these things are not comfortable. They're not supposed to be comfortable. You know, comfort goes along with the addiction. I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of um, indulgence, really. It's really, I don't know that it's comfort as so much as it is indulgence. The ego wants to be indulged. It's almost like I have a part of me that's like a three-year-old. And and this is very appropriate behavior in a three-year-old. An actual three-year-old human being gets to be like this because that's their developmental state. But I'm an adult, and so having a three-year-old run the show inside of me is not okay. And just like with a kind, loving adult, like there's a three-year-old, she wants what she wants in the store, and the parent says, no, you can't have that. Well, she may be throwing a, tan- a tantrum. You know, my inner three-year-old, my inner whatever that is, that adolescent, you know, sometimes it's a three-year-old, sometimes it's an adolescent, is going to uh, protest. And as the program is this loving, firm adult that says, I know you don't like it, I know it's uncomfortable, we're doing it anyway. And then what happens is that the new uncomfortable behavior becomes comfortable, and then it becomes this is just how I'm doing it. It's two years later. Well, this is just what I do. I go get my mental health care once a week. It's like it's just normal now. But initially, there was an adjustment. So that would be my answer to that. I think you asked about the forms. Um, you can contact. I can send you the forms. I have them in digital form. Um, Lori C has the forms. Um, he's got the resentment form. Um, he's got the forms on his website. I think it's OA bigbook.info. I might be, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, he's got forms on his, um, on his website and um, you can just ask around. So I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn S. And our final question this morning comes from Leah S. Star one, Tanya, Leah S. Thank you so much. This is a phenomenal meeting. I I really appreciate you taking my question. And the question is that I get calls for 10 steps, but there is, um, from what I understand, there is constant abuse. And um, these are newcomers who are not yet through with their first three steps. And there is lack of um, there is fear and lack of faith. How do you deal with that? 
Well, I think I need a little more clarification from you. Fear and lack of faith about what? Um, in higher power. Well, that's not a step 10 question. That is really a step steps two and three question. So I don't. I don't take sponsees through step 10 until they've been through the first nine steps. So if, you know, someone's in fear, I mean, if someone's new and they're in fear, I'm not going to take them through a step 10. They're not there yet. No, I will say things like, you know, if there, if this is a step two question, I will ask, are there people in Overeaters Anonymous who you have seen recovery in and do you believe they have recovery? That's where step two begins, I think, is that you might not believe it for yourself, but you can believe it for somebody else. And if they can say, yes, I have such hope for them, because if they can believe it, if they can believe that it happened, then that's a starting point. And then possibly they can possibly start believing it could happen for them. But they won't believe it's going to happen for them until it actually happens for them. They have to take a leap of faith, too. Everyone in this program is taking a leap of faith all day long, every day, without exception. We we can't guarantee, you know, you can't guarantee to a newcomer what the outcome of their journey is going to be. But what you can guarantee is whatever the outcome is going to be is going to be a hell of a lot better than what they've been doing. So I don't know if that answers your question, Leah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning. Of course, thank you, Joe, for such a helpful and instructive presentation this morning. Your service is greatly appreciated. We're going to close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.